This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Tuesday, March 5th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I did a little experiment with that Jane Meyer New Yorker piece. I have been hearing so much good things about it. I wanted to read it all. So I click on the page at newyorker.com and I am offered the text version, but also an audio version. One hour, 19 minutes. I could beat that with my eyes. Look, I'll even beat it with my mouth. Here we go. In January, during the longest government shutdown in American history, President Donald Trump rode in a motorcade through Hidalgo County, Texas, eventually stopping on a grassy bluff overlooking the Rio Grande. The White House wanted to dramatize what Trump was portraying as a national emergency, the need to build a wall along the Mexican border, the presence of armored vehicles, bales of confiscated marijuana, and federal agents in flak jackets underscored the message. See, I'm ahead already. Reading will beat listening. So here's what I did. I set a timer on my phone, not a timer, a stopwatch, to see how long I would take anything below 119, and I'm the winner, and I plunge into the story. I knew there were some pitfalls in reading it from my phone. Namely, I could get texts that would pop up or emails, and I could get distracted, or I could be entranced by hyperlinks within the text. And then I would lose time. So what I did was I girded myself. I made a vow I would not be answering texts as I read it. I would not go on the hyperlinks and I plowed in. Good reporting. Jane Mayer. Lots of, lots of good info that I already knew, but it was okay to be reminded of. There was a lot of background on Bill Shine, who I met one time in, I think, the year 2000 in a Fox control room in a foxhole. I did not realize that as White House communications staff, Bill Shine is still getting paid millions of dollars of severance from Fox after being asked to leave admits their sexual harassment scandal. The two big scoops that everyone was talking about were the only real cases of new information. There wasn't a lot in there that people hadn't picked up on that we need to know that's new necessarily. One of the insights was that a Fox reporter got the Stormy Daniels story first and Fox management spiked it before the election. The other was an okay scoop. Gary Cohen had tried to dissuade Trump from sicking his Justice Department on the AT&T-Time Warner merger. I assume Cohen was the source of this, or at least confirmed it. It made him look good, him saying, we are not using the Justice Department in this way, but used it was, even though lost, they did. Okay, time well spent. And I did come away with a realization. Uh, Right up top in the piece and in several places throughout the piece, there were references to how influential Fox News was and, and how close it has become to state media, the official propaganda outlet of the state. But this is entirely backwards because state media is when you have political leaders who dictate what the media says. This is the opposite. You have the media dictating what the thoughts are in Donald Trump's mind much worse, in my opinion. But anyway, I'm nearing the end. I want to check in on the time. I didn't even do that. I didn't even check on how how I was progressing. And then I come across this statement. And I think I knew it. And I may have forgotten it. But I got obsessed with it. Rupert Murdoch is currently married to, do you know who it is? Jerry Hall. As in Mick Jagger's ex, Jerry Hall. And that sparked in me a question that I had to pursue. 
Did Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall have kids together? Turns out, click, 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 they had four kids together. I found pictures of them all. James Jagger, Elizabeth Jagger, Gabriel Jagger, and Georgia May Jagger. And I looked at all of them closely. They're all quite comely. Because what I wanted to see was what I saw before me and what I never thought I would see, which is this. I wanted to look into the face of a human being who can say, Mick Jagger is my dad and Rupert Murdoch is my stepdad. It seems like an impossible statement to make, and yet four of our fellow humans can accurately make it. Yeah, 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 Sarah Knox Taylor. My father was president of the United States and my husband was president of the Confederacy. Sure, Percy Florence Shelley. My dad wrote Ozymandias and my mom wrote Frankenstein. Yes, yes, we know. I did not care because I was gazing into the faces of the descendants of Jumping Jack Flash and the step scions of Republic ruining Rupert. Wow. It cost me some time. It cost me quite dearly, in fact. For what could have been a 30-minute, maybe 35-minute read, stretched into 44 minutes. Which just goes to show what I've always said. Listening to audio at double speed is the most efficient and pleasurable way to imbibe info. At that speed, I could get to all the texts. I could glance at them at least. I could have researched the Jaggers on my phone. I don't know. Your experience may differ. Georgia May Jagger. Maybe you can't listen that quick. Maybe you would have gotten distracted. Maybe you couldn't retain all the information that I've learned to retain listening at double speed and doing other things. For instance, I think if I was listening at double speed, I would have had some time, some part of my brain would have had some time to ponder if Mick had anticipated this turn of events when he wrote Sympathy for the Devil and to wonder if the presence of that song and the kind tone ingratiates him around his ex's new beau. I hope it does. On the show today, a spiel about the right way, which is to say, unfortunately, the long way to understand and ponder our president. But first, do you watch the TV show Top Chef? No, it's been on 15 years. They're all on demand. I'll wait. Okay, you're back. Well, this season of Top Chef is the best season. Why? Because a friend of mine is on it. And that got me into the show, and I have lots of questions. David Viana is the executive chef at the Heirloom Kitchen in New Jersey, and he is a really, really good chef. But is he the top chef? Only time and Tom Calicchio will tell. No, he's not. He lost already. But this is a thorough and interesting conversation into the reality of reality TV. David Viana is the executive chef of the Heirloom Kitchen in New Jersey. And so you're saying, Mike, you're doing different segments with every good restaurant in New Jersey. I am not. Every great restaurant in New Jersey, not even that. Because David just got off the TV series Top Chef. I watched every episode. I know David uh, beforehand. I was rooting for him. I'm not a Top Chef guy, but I think I might be now because it's so well done. And I want to talk to him about his experience in cooking in general. David, thanks for coming by. 
Mike, it's my pleasure, man. This is such a fun thing to do. So, how much watching of the show did you do before you were on it? Uh, I was a fan. Yeah. Uh, every season, uh, pretty much the only appointment television I have is really? Top Chef. Yeah. So, of the cooking shows, I mean, I guess you have to say that now, but in all sincerity, this was your favorite cooking show? Yeah, of all time, it was my favorite. Uh, I mean, when I first started cooking, I guess Chopped, and I watched a few more, but that all kind of got cheesy. And, yeah. Uh, Top Chef always had a lot of integrity and great you know, guest chefs, and I just felt the quality was always better, and, and they did a lot to highlight what you do. And when it was to. when it was cheesy, it was by design, the fromage kitchen, you yeah, know, yeah. we understand that <laughs> challenge. You must use a Gouda or a Brie. Yeah. Um, so it was, among among chefs, among people who do what you do, it's the gold standard, would you say? I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. It's the gold standard. Because it's been on how long, 15 years, 16 years? We're season years? 16. Yeah. And is it one of those shows where they have like three seasons a year? Is it 16 no. years? It's about 16 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the people who are on now who are maybe in their 30s watched it when they were aspiring chefs, and then you work in a kitchen for 90 hours a week, and it's hard to actually watch a show. Yes. Yeah. But you did. You kept up with it. That was my appointment television. It was a very rare that I had anything that I truly desire. I mean, now with Netflix, you can, you know, bang out some stuff, and Amazon Prime, you know, Mrs. Mizell, shout yeah. out. That's a yeah. good show. <laughs> um, but That's so you can definitely- cooking segments, although some- the, the, the cuisine of the 50s was much more limited. <laughs> a lot of casseroles yeah, in Mrs. Ca- Mizell. It's yeah. not bad. I mean, I think that if I lived then uh, and had her cook, I'd, I'd eat well, though not healthily. I think, they, I mean, they go to the butcher shop a lot there. There's a lot of butcher. Yes. Yeah. The butcher was a big guy in your life. Yes. <laughs> like, if you weren't good with the butcher, you got the good cut the of good meat. Good cuts. Oh, yeah. 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 You got to be nice to the butcher. Yeah. Still, I mean, when you buy meats, do you go and do the selecting, you personally, uh, for your I, kitchen? I do a lot of selecting because we are such a small operation. We're a small restaurant in New Jersey and we're only open Thursday through Sunday, so I can do a lot of handpicking. Yeah. Um, but I've always been a believer in being good to your purveyors, like forging a relationship. I want them to think of me more as a friend than as a customer, just because it's like you're you less likely to screw you over them into that. You're, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other two days, or the other, am I getting it right? The other three, three days, days, what happens to the restaurant? Let me guess, underage disco. Close, close. Uh, we do have disco moms. Uh, no, a lot of cooking classes. Uh, and there is dancing if you watch me prep during the day. Uh-huh. We'll be doing a lot of dancing and singing. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we do cooking classes. Uh, we do. Uh, we use up our space. Uh, we have a demo kitchen, um, and uh, we teach about fourteen to fifteen people every night uh, cooking classes. Um, so even before Top Chef, you were probably of all the contestants on the show, you were probably the only one who you could book a standing appointment with to get the contestant to teach you how to cook. Yeah, yeah, and actually there was actually one more, Nini. She Nini. Was, she's from Cookspace. Cookspace. Cook Space, that's she, it. Did they select you, or did you pitch yourself to them? Um, I got a phone call, um, but even with that, you still have to go through a lot of uh, hoops and uh, psychological evaluations. Um, really? To make sure that you gel well with the others in the house? Yeah, I'm sure they, they want a type, uh, yeah. archetype of certain type of personalities and, and you know, meshing them all together. So yeah. you have to fill, a fill, I feel like, a quota. Like, I'm the nice guy uh-huh. know, on the season. <laughs> <laughs> the perennial positive force being the nice guy. Um, I, and that's I, why you didn't finish last, but you know, towards the towards the front. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where nice guys Not usually end stand. up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you sense that um, everyone that they got, maybe you couldn't eat all the dishes of the people who were eliminated early, but they were all really legit chefs. They were chefs that if you had been to their kitchen, you would say this is a great chef. Yeah, and and for example, I've eaten at some of the restaurants now, so I, we, yeah. you know, it's all been aired. 
Uh, I do know who wins. I can't tell you. Yeah. Um, but I've ha- I've gone I've had the privilege of eating at everyone's restaurant, a lot of their restaurants. And for example, someone like Kevin, who mm-hmm. maybe isn't quick on his feet and doesn't have all the the things necessary to to be competing at a high level on something like Top Chef. I think he's a thoughtful chef. I think he takes time on what he puts on his menu. I think he is very thoughtful and thorough and does an amazing job and probably has one of the better restaurants of anybody on the show. It just didn't translate into being a good competitor on something so high energy and spur of the moment. Kind right. Of where you go on instinct and, and something like that. And from what I remember, the dish that got him eliminated was a dish that was overly safe. Are we talking about Kevin? Uh, Kevin, yeah. He, he yeah. had an overly safe dish and was warned about being overly safe. And then I yeah. think he went home on a salty dessert. Yeah. Now, now here's my question, <laughs> though. They always say that you would think, I would understand why for drama's sake they would say, go big or go home. But strategically, is it, aren't there kind of dishes where you say to yourselves, and I think one of the contestants said this, this is a dish that isn't going to get me eliminated. Because one person goes home and the only basis is the worst dish out of the remaining contestants. So that would seem to be a viable strategy. I think it is a viable strategy, honestly. Um, to better be safe than sorry. Yes. Um, and but I didn't but go- the official message is go big or go home. So how do you square oh, that? They they change their message according to the episode. I uh-huh. mean, like we did the uh, the meat episode, the carne episode, and they're like, oh, you just put a big slab and a knife. That's all we wanted. No no veg. Just. But if we had put a piece of meat on a on a on a, on a cutting board with a knife, they would have been like, "Where's the veg? You didn't even be create." They can tailor what they say to to what you give them. So right. they do have you hopping from one foot to the the other a lot. Like and I that. also think, quite unf- not unfairly, it's just how things shake out. If you um, have a dish that's a lot like everyone else's dish, you get compared to that and you can Absolutely. suffer. So an example yes. of that is, didn't you have a tartare when someone else did? Mm-hmm. And I think your tartare was maybe better, but because there were two tartars, you both suffered. A hundred percent. And I actually warned Brandon of that scenario. I was like, you know, we're the worser of the two dishes is probably going to go home. Yeah. Like, so we're, we're, we're eliminating all the other contestants and making a spotlight on the two of our dishes yeah. by both of us doing the same dish. So and how do you push them off tartare? I tried. That's my, that was my pitch. <laughs> I was like, hey, <laughs> one of us might be going home. He went home. And yeah. he went home. <laughs> Did he just think he's better than you at tartare? He thought he was better. And uh, he had said that he had made a steak before and he didn't want to do it again. And I was like, but you have the cut to make a steak. He had a ribeye. And I yes. had Chuck. And I, we both only had one hour to prep and, and present our dish so you can cut a ribeye into steaks and sear them and give you somebody a perfectly executed steak in an hour there's nothing i can do with chuck in an hour to make it palatable in general i haven't watched the show before this year but i understand that it is they go for more the vibe of cooperation than competition among the competitors or at least in the season i saw you guys felt like a team and even though Ultimately, your job was to get someone else kicked off who wasn't you. It wasn't like Big Brother. There, not only was there nothing cutthroat, people are trying to help each other. So my question is, is that just an outgrowth of the culture of kitchens, or why, why was that the case? Um, I think it's it was us. I think it was the, the particular set of people that came together in that house, and um, we all kind of spoke about it early on, and then it took you know people like Kelsey, Michelle, and I to do some good faith efforts to promote that during help, help people yeah help yeah. people unnecessarily when you least expect it give them some of your resources when they least expected it you know and and do show that example and it kind of became contagious so it, was, it really spread who you know, who among the contestants needed to be convinced the most to be uh collaborative <laughs> 
Um, I don't think it was. I don't think there was a lot of convincing. I think once you start, sh- you know, putting your money where your mouth is, yes. you know, and actually doing something, there's not anybody that's going to go. That's you know, let's not do that. You right. know, it became really contagious. But then it again, a, once a caustic uh, or dysfunctional vibe breaks out, it's hard to pull that back, and that could happen. It could happen. It, it I might mean, be the good season's TV, not over yet. Know? The yeah. season's not over yet, and I'm not going to say that. You know. Um, you know, there weren't opportunities to kind of get caustic. There were some people that blurred that line and got pretty close to being not so nice. And yeah. um, But ultimately, I think that we all realize that being this season and, and being on television as people and setting this kind of an example is good. It's, right. It needs to happen more often on these reality TV shows because I believe in, in, in you know, better mental health for our industry. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for for many years, it wasn't there. And we're burning it on both ends and working long hours. And this is a start. You know, being friendlier to one another and thinking of one another and helping one another. It's a very competitive industry, but there's room for all of us. And I think we kind of embody that. And there's a new wave, a new culture. I think better, healthier kitchens are popping up. It isn't the Gordon Ramsay style as it was. Right. And that's what we, he was that way because that's what he was that's what he was brought up in. And in a lot of ways, I was brought up in those same kitchens. It's been 16 years that I've been cooking. But um, there has to be a point when one of us, the younger generation of chefs, decides there needs to be a change. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of us are thinking along those lines. I think it's that way with a lot of cultures, but with sports, it's that way too. Yeah. Not that you have to be coddling, but I think a coherent NBA team that values each other as people gets along a lot better than the dictatorial top-down model of the past. Yeah, I mean, for all the talent on the Celtics, they're saying that they're a bunch of individuals, <laughs> not so much I don't a Brad, team. I don't blame poor Brad Stevens for that. <laughs> what I say is... I understand it's a TV show. Like, when would a good chef ever have to, when would a non-baker ever have to bake? Maybe not, that's not a great example. Or just running through a Whole Foods in a half hour getting <laughs> your vegetables. I mean, you could budget a half hour more. I guess gotcha. my analogy would be this. The decathlon seeks to determine the world's greatest athlete. That's yes. the, the, the decathlon winner. He's the world's greatest athlete. She's the world's greatest athlete. Mm. And so they put together okay. 10 events that more or less get to that. You can argue... You could argue against it. You could say there's no ball throwing. But at least these are a collection of events that test different things. Are the events on Top Chef, are they more or less, if you're determining who the Top Chef is, are those events and those challenges really the way to get to them? Um, I think they're a way. And they're adequate. And And they're maybe the most telegenic way. Yes. And also, at the end of the day, like... We're in a more subjective subjective thing, endeavor. We're doing a more subjective endeavor. Food, the quality of the, the product that we come up with is subjective. And um, the terms of what makes a creative dish is subjective. And right. a lot, there's a lot more subjectivity. Think of it as figure skating more so than right. the decathlon. And, and there are compulsory in figure skating. And in your industry, there's not. I mean – this isn't for the challenge that gets people eliminated, but in that quick fire, which is the first challenge, sometimes there'll be a celebrity taster and his note will be, I just don't like mint. Well, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> I made a mint jelly pork chop. What am I going to yeah, do? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. So that's not exactly fair, but that's okay. We have to live with it. True. Um, did they ever eliminate a chef who you thought didn't have the worst or one of the worst dishes? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's happened um, but, but do you I, think the other chefs agreed with you? I mean, maybe there was a wide... The, we, there's some head scratchers, obviously. Yeah. Like, we've all looked at each other like, seriously, that just happened? Huh. But I think that's few and far between. Uh, but it did definitely happen a couple times. And we're fr- like, how did that person make that? Like, how do they survive that? Like, it was really weird. Oh, more like a bad dish that 
Yeah, that got pushed through. That yeah. got pushed through. Like, how do they serve? Like, how do they survive serving that? I don't know. Right, right. Yeah. It seems I know. I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but it does seem every once in a while there's a fundamental uh, mistake that if you make, I'm not going to say chicken and waffles and the waffles suck, but if that happens and it's half the dish, come on now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Are all the dishes at least good? Sometimes they make it seem like this is a disaster and they spit it out. Um, I, I think that they go out of their way not to spit it out. So if they do spit it out, it's bad. Yeah, I'm not yeah. gonna. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I think there was one there drink was, on the boat. I think that no one liked. <laughs> yes, yes. And we had two cocktails that we made that were yeah. quite delicious that they never aired. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> How much uh, food? Oh, so if it's not a dish that's being graded, if it's some bonus snack, they don't have to put it. They in, don't have I to guess. put it in, or you know, I mean, like we didn't win that event and. They spit out the jello shot. So yeah. for them to love our drinks, it only go against the narrative of us losing. Why would we have better drinks? I see. So, but um, neither here nor there. Um, uh, it was uh, no. For the most part, they were. They try not to spit anything out. I, I think. I think uh, Padman does a really great job of like bearing down and, and <laughs> eating whatever it is that we put in front of her. She's a really good trooper in that respect. So if they spit something out, it was probably really bad. As as a fan of the show and an admirer, having been on the show, did it increase your opinion of it, or was it more like when you could, you know, see behind the curtain or see how the uh, magic is done, and maybe it loses a little luster? Um, I think it increases it. I don't know if I could even, if I were to go back in time and tell myself, I'd give myself some advice, uh, mostly to not beat myself up when I didn't do well, or if I was in the middle, or just. Just be happy that you're still on the show and you're still cooking and to take it as a victory because it's a lot of energy wasted and it's a marathon. It really is a culinary mind marathon. Like you yeah. beat yourself up a lot. You, you're exhausted a lot. You, you're, it's a really – it's a grind and it's a bigger grind than it's portrayed on TV. Um, and I wasn't necessarily prepared for that. I well, think you, did, it, you seemed like you were. Although you know, by the end there was a little frazzlement. There was frazzlement. I, I got You didn't get out. the octopus you wanted. Yeah. I was a little annoyed. Yeah. That and the boat. The boat, the boat episode kind of really got under my skin, you yeah. know, to, to cook for that long a period of time. We were cooking through the night and I was exhausted and I felt that we should have won. I felt like we had the better food and we didn't, it, you know, and I felt as if the judges, if they were, had their say, we would have won too, but it wasn't up to the judges, up to the, the partiers and uh, we didn't throw the better party. We threw, we cooked the better food. That is and, true. Which is what I came on the show to do. Yeah. So it got under, it was really hard to stand there and know that one of us was going home even though we all cooked better yeah. that night. And you're standing around looking saying, when did top party planner break out? Yeah. And no one told me about this. <laughs> I mean, you got to listen to the rules. Like, it really, it specifically said that the po- the people on the boats were voting. Yeah. Um, so you got to schmooze them a little. Yeah. There was yeah. not enough schmoozing. It was more yeah, one member, one member puking downstairs. <laughs> got another guy who can't leave his little ba- his little waiting pool. <laughs> <laughs> the people of Kentucky, what I learned is that the people of Kentucky like keggers. They don't like soiree. I yeah. did a, we did a very sophisticated New York style yeah. event when yeah. they wanted a kegger. And yeah. that's how that And ended. then Kelsey from the Alabama girl those <laughs> sidles in and knows exactly what to do. David Viana is the executive chef at the Heirloom Kitchen where you could uh, go eat if you're lucky enough. They also, you're doing viewing parties still? 
Yeah, we're still doing some. As long as I'm on the episode, which I'm, in, I'm still in a few more as a sous chef. I, I help out these contestants, and uh, you can come by and, and watch. There's a they're all on our calendar. Uh, yeah, check our website, and you can book a reservation. And he's on Top Chef, party. and just listeners, if you mention the gist, you get nothing, but they'll be really nice to you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, David. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. I got a lot of really good feedback on my playing and analyzing Donald Trump's speech to CPAC. Feedback along the lines of, I knew he said some things, but I didn't know how badly he failed to say a whole lot of other things. It is a conundrum of coverage. We play these usable clips of the president, and they have a syntax and a structure that's followable. And those words are often wild enough. It's not like we're doing him so many favors by misrepresenting what he thinks, only those are versions of what he thinks at the very height of his thinking and not, in fact, the midpoint, the median of his thought, which is to say an almost unfollowable train of thought. Unless you delve in and just allow the hours and hours of a Trump speech to wash over you like a warm bath, no wrong analogy, to wash over you like a blanket of carpenter ants, you don't get the full effect of Donald Trump's pointlessness. Oh, I know you read paragraphs that contain words and phrases calling the speech and others like it disjointed, meandering, freewheeling, fact-challenged, but those descriptions do the work of communicating to you in an understandable way that which is not understandable. I once read a critique of war movies that said, There is no horror that can be conveyed on screen through sound and images unless the viewer has an actual visceral fear of death at the time. Therefore, there is no such thing as a quote-unquote realistic war movie. It's just like covering Trump's speeches. We in journalism, even the worst of us, can't help but deploy subjects and predicates and verbs, and occasional examples of punctuation. And once you do that, you are not properly representing the Trump experience. So let's go back. And this is a great part. I just, I didn't want to deluge you yesterday, but I did get a good reaction. I want to play one part. It so exemplifies so much about Trump. And it starts with Trump giving himself credit for an accomplishment that's a year and a half old. And of course, he embellishes it with a lie. And one of the other things we did in our tax package is Anwar, perhaps the largest field in the world, oil and gas. Perhaps not. Anwar, the wildlife reserve, is huge. The oil field is big, not the biggest in the world, where they can drill for oil in Anwar called the Coastal Plain. It's uh, 6,100 square kilometers, but Gawar Field in Saudi Arabia, that is 8,400 square kilometers, by far the largest conventional oil field in the world. So we start off slow with a fact check. He was exaggerating. It's like almost normal presidenting. And then we hit this. I got it approved. And I didn't want to get it approved for a certain reason, because I thought somebody treated me very badly. What the hell? This is the president maybe confessing that his temper and the time he got into a fit of pique got the better of him. You know what? Maybe this shows progress. I think group is really allowing for growth. Nope, there's no growth. 
What there is, is threats. Very badly. Don't get that vote very often. And I said, you know, I don't want to get it. Okay, let us unpack and fill in. He knows what he's talking about, as do maybe some people in the crowd, people who suffer from a kind of Trump stigmata, whereas Trump's wounds are their wounds. And in this case, the name of the wound is Senator Lisa Murkowski. What Trump is referring to is that Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska was one of three Republicans to vote against and therefore to doom the Republicans' vote to overhaul the Affordable Care Act. To kill it, really. He was mad at Lisa Murkowski because she didn't go along with the plan to kill Obamacare. Trump wanted to punish Lisa Murkowski. In order to punish her, he was willing to go against a promise that he made on the campaign trail. He was willing to thwart a policy that would one day be included on the list of his greatest accomplishments. But he needs us to know that he almost didn't do it because he doesn't forget. The attitude that says, Lisa, you're on notice. But Senator Murkowski, who is actually good at politics, though she would not be able to draw a crowd like the CPAC crowd, she would not be able to engender such knowing guffaws from a room that might not even know what it's guffawing at. All she would be able to do is A, get Anwar drilling, which she wanted, but also B, doom the plan to wreck Obamacare. So what Trump is doing here, in a way that's so opaque, it's almost impossible to follow, is entertaining the crowd with a story of how he got played. Then he veered into an anecdote, a related anecdote, that he's often told about wanting to punish Senator Murkowski, but a person who he doesn't name, who changed his mind. Then I get a call from a friend of mine, and he's in the oil business. He's not asking for anything. He's a but he really is a knowledgeable guy when it comes to oil and gas. He said to me, hey, and they all call me Mr. President. I have friends that for 35 years, hey, Don, how you doing? Hey, Donnie, I love you, Donnie. For 35 years, now they call Mr. President, sir. I'm going to fade it out here because we are concentrating on the story of how Donald Trump came to sign the Anwar uh, drilling into law. In other words, to keep his promise, despite the fact that he so badly wanted to punish Senator Murkowski, but he couldn't because he's not good at this stuff. So remember where he left the anecdote, I got a call from a guy and this guy said, and that's it. Trump never tells us what the guy said. Trump never returns to this oil savvy businessman. He never recounts the advice he got. He never informs the audience at CPAC what he was quote unquote thinking at the time. The issue is abandoned for a little jaunt about how people like to call him Mr. President and how that shows respect for the office. And then he's on to tariffs. It's not just that he's making up stories. It's that he's not even ending them. So forgive me. This indulgence into yet another foray into what some are calling, but I am not buying, is literally the longest speech any president has ever given. They didn't, they didn't look at all the Rutherford behave speeches, please. But I do think it has a parallel in history. Not in terms of senselessness, but in terms of temper. I have been reading a little bit about Woodrow Wilson, who, unlike Trump, had a truly first-rate intellect, but suffered from paroxysms of rage and eclipses of ego. Listen to this description of Wilson and his go-it-alone self-regard on the international stage. Quote, in another instance of his self-damaging egotism, Wilson had refused to invite along this, this trip for a peace accord, uh, invite along in an advisory capacity former Secretary of State Elihu Root, former President William Howard Taft, 
or any other statesman with a first-rate mind. I was reading this about Wilson yesterday, March 4th, and it was about a speech that Wilson delivered to Congress on March 4th, 1917. Wilson's anger escalated into foaming rage, which he funneled into a public statement on March 4th. Quote, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. It would not cure the situation to call the 65th Congress into extraordinary session, Wilson ranted, for the majority that favored the bill will continue to be, quote, powerless and helpless. Now, Edward Weinstein, who's a doctor who wrote a medical biography of Wilson years later, was the first to point out that words like powerless, helpless, and paralysis reflected Wilson's own state and suggested how worn down the president was. In fact, some historians think that after that speech, Wilson had a stroke. He was out of commission for nine days. And we all know now that a few months later, he did have a massive stroke, which by force of will and fiction, his wife conspired to literally and figuratively prop him up as president. What's striking to me is that as I read some of the things that Wilson said, they come across as really angry and intemperate, and they reflect poorly on what had been pretty good judgment. They're all much, much, much more cogent than Donald Trump, a man who was in between strokes, was much easier to follow in his logic than our current president is. And this is my last promise to you, just listeners. I will be offering you no more trips into the synapses of the first brain, misfiring though it may have been during the CPAC conference. No more speeches, no more analysis. I spare you future CPAC Trump content, if only the Almighty will spare us all. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. Their production of the show is hindered only by tossed off references to Padma Lakshmi's vomiting a little in her throat. They just have to track this down. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She is actually the step-great-granddaughter of Sonia Raphael and get this, the cousin of Edward Perez. I know that's hard to believe. The gist. My great-granduncle Schmirky Katerginski was a partisan of Vilnia. And my other great-grandfather had the same name as a man who tried to assassinate Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It is weird, right? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.